Welcome to Breaking Green Ceilings, the podcast that amplifies the diverse voices of those who are committed to protecting and sustainably managing our natural environment. I'm your host, Sapna Mulki. Let's get started. Today, we're talking to DeAndre Smiles, who is a PhD candidate in the Department of Geography and is a citizen of the Leech Lake Band of Ojibwe. I reached out to DeAndre because he tweeted a few months back that he was going to be teaching a course this spring on Indigenous environmental activism at The Ohio State University. In addition, he is pursuing an interesting dissertation research focus on historical and contemporary disrespect and disturbances of deceased Indigenous bodies and Indigenous burial grounds in his home state of Minnesota. So those are the two topics we focus on in this conversation, the Indigenous environmental activism course that he's teaching and his dissertation on Indigenous bodies and Indigenous burial grounds in Minnesota. This was an especially challenging interview because I had so many questions for DeAndre and so it was really hard for me to pick and choose what I wanted to ask him. And it's not just the situation where I have a challenge really myself in, it's with many of our former guests as well. So I've decided that from time to time, I will invite a former guest to check in, continue the conversation and see what's changed in their lives since the last time we spoke. I think this will be fun because it allows us to follow our change makers on their journey and to build a connection to whatever extent possible. All right. Well, I hope you enjoy the story. I'm really excited to have you on the podcast to talk to us about your postdoc research as an Indigenous geographer and also about a course that you'll be teaching in spring 2021 that's on Indigenous environmental activism. But first, I wanted to start off with asking you, how did you develop your passion for the natural environment? That is a really great question. It stems from my childhood. I happened to grow up with a mother who was constantly shooing me outside to go play. And I would go outside and kind of explore. And one of the things that we would do growing up in Minneapolis is go to one of our local parks and go around and be outside and be close to the water next to one of the many lakes in the city. Mm -hmm. And that's something that's always kind of stuck with me. I remember for my 15th birthday, um, instead of having like a, a birthday party or anything that's kind of a traditional thing that you would do on a birthday, my mom took me camping. We went up to the North Shore of Lake Superior and we spent a week camping out next to the lake shore and doing exploring. And so that's, that's always stuck with me. But I think another kind of background that describes my passion for the natural environment kind of is based upon my own tribal identity as Anishinaabe. And in our creation story, we talk about the ways that our more than human kin, like the animals, our relatives have come together to create what we call Turtle Island. And it, it comes with kind of this lesson that we are intrinsically tied into nature, that humans are not separate from it, that we're not better than our more than human kin, but we are interconnected with them and that we need to continue to work together in order to create a better future for all of us. And so that's been something that's been a really guiding force in kind of my own academic work as I've gone through graduate school and now transitioning to being a postdoc and hopefully one day becoming a tenure track academic. And so those things all together have really kind of fueled my passion for the natural environment. I'm somebody that I'm really happiest when I'm outside and out and about which this pandemic has made it really tough because you're trying to stay away from people and trying to 
stay away from large crowds and it makes it tough to go down to the park here in the Scioto Mile here in Columbus and you know, it makes it tough to go travel to try to go exploring. It absolutely kills me that I'm an hour away from the foothills of the Appalachians and I can't. It's really tough to go explore because you don't know the risk that you put yourself through. So I'm just somebody that's always really glad and really the happiest when I'm outside and in the environment. And so with that kind of a background, I mean, this kind of work that I do is natural, no pun intended. <laughs> yeah, it's allowed. Puns are allowed here. <laughs> So you mentioned that you would go up to Lake Superior. Mm -hmm. I've never been there. And I'm just curious to know, what does it feel like? So it's a really hard to describe feeling. And this might be kind of fueled by a little bit of homesickness for being home in Minnesota. But the things that I remember the most, because I lived in a city called Duluth for a number of years when I was in my master's degree, which is on the far western end of the lake. And so the scenic North Shore was just outside of town. and I found myself going up there a lot when I was in graduate school. And one of the things that I really, really remember is just feeling the really kind of cool, like stiff breeze coming off of the lake. The lake has this really interesting moderating effect called the lake effect, where during the summer, it'll be really, really cool by the lakeshore. And then in the wintertime, it's actually warmer next to the lake than it is like further inland for some reason. But wow, may not notice it in the really cold northern Minnesota winters. But I just remember like the, the cool air and depending on what time of year you're up there, like the fall is absolutely gorgeous because the leaves turn colors up there usually about late September, early October. So there's about a week and a half, two weeks where it's just this brilliant display of like changing colors in the trees and it just looks really great. Sometimes it'll be really cloudy up there and overcast, but it's still really pretty. But other days it's really sunny up there. At nighttime, if you're lucky enough, in some parts of the North Shore, you can see the Aurora Borealis. Really? At nighttime. Mm -hmm. Northern Minnesota is like a really, really good viewing spot for that. I mean, outside of the cities, of course, but the North Shore is extremely rural. Between Duluth and then Thunder Bay, Ontario, which is like kind of the next biggest city on the lake, you have like little towns of like a few hundred to a couple thousand people. So it's, it's very rural in nature. Mm. When you get further up the lakeshore, when you start getting close to the Canadian border in Minnesota, the hills that kind of run alongside the lakeshore get a lot craggier and a lot rockier and they kind of resemble like kind of small mountains. And so it really kind of enhances kind of this wild feeling that you get when you're out there. And it's just really great. Like, it's just so easy to unplug up there. As a matter of fact, in a lot of places on the North Shore, when you get closer to the Canadian border, you lose cell phone reception. So you're kind of like forced to just kind of unplug and just kind of be present in the moment. And so it's a really, really great place. I, I hope that you get the opportunity to go one day because it, it's absolutely my favorite place in the world. I feel like I was there with you as you were describing the landscape and I could just, I guess, felt like I could feel the breeze and smell mm -hmm. the air. It just... Mm -hmm. This is my first time living in the Midwest in the U.S. And so it's so different from anything else that I'm familiar with. And I'm really excited to explore the nature in these parts of, of the country. Mm -hmm. And I've absolutely loved the fall here in Columbus, Ohio, because every moment I'm stopping to take pictures of the trees changing or the leaves changing color. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I've lived in the Northeast, but I just don't remember it being so... I don't know, moving and something just so enigmatic about the light and the colors. It's just every single angle is, I don't know, a whole other story in my mind. It feels like it. But now that you're describing the fall mm -hmm. colors at Lake Superior, I'm like, oh, now that's somewhere I'd love to see the fall. 
Well, thank you for sharing that. I really appreciate it. Of course. So how has your transition geographically been from growing up in Minnesota to now being in Columbus, Ohio? So when I was growing up, I didn't set foot in the state of Ohio until I was 20 years old and I was happened to be passing through to something on the East Coast. And so passing through, you go through the northern part of the state on Interstate 90 through like Toledo and Cleveland. And so I kind of had this view of Ohio as this very Rust Belt E state where it's, you know, a lot of factories kind of maybe a bit gray and just kind of run down. And when I applied to graduate school or when I was applying to my PhD program when I was at the University of Minnesota Duluth doing my master's degree, a couple of my friends said, well, you should really apply to the program at Ohio State. It's a really, really top geography program and they do the kind of work that you're looking to do. And I was like, oh, you know, that'd be really interesting. And on one hand, I was like, well, Ohio, like, I don't know about moving to Ohio. And the other hand, I was like, well, Ohio State's a top five department in the country, right? Like, I wouldn't be nearly good enough to get into a program like that. So I apply. And of course, I end up getting in. And so they invited me to a recruitment weekend that they do every year for the incoming graduate students to try to show you around the department and help you kind of better inform yourself to make a commitment to the program. And so... Um, At that time, I was deciding between Ohio State, the University of British Columbia up in Vancouver, and then the University of Kansas down near Kansas City. And so I was like, well, I had been on a visit to Kansas, very lovely place. Um, I wasn't able to make it up to Vancouver, but I was going to go to Columbus. And I was like, well, once I visit Ohio State and I see Columbus, I'll be able to make an informed decision on where I want to go. And I drove, it was a 13-hour drive from Minneapolis to Ohio. So I didn't get to Columbus until like, one or two in the morning. And I was just driving through and I entered the city and it just struck me, even at nighttime, it struck me as an extremely beautiful place. Like I was like, this looks really, really nice, even though I can't see a lot of it. I can't wait to see what it looks like in the daylight. And so the next morning I went with my graduate student host and we drove to campus and I got to walk around and I got to see a bit of the city. And it really kind of changed my conceptions of what Ohio was. I was thinking like, oh, Every place in Ohio is going to look like Toledo or look like this stereotypical Rust Belt like place. And I saw Columbus and I was like, this is almost as beautiful as Minneapolis. Like I could see myself being extremely happy being here. And so the day that I went on the official campus visit, I committed to joining the geography program at OSU. And so I was really looking forward to it. The interesting thing is the transition when I moved down to start my program, it was probably one of the most tumultuous times in my life. For a variety of reasons, I had ended a four-year relationship like a couple of weeks before I moved down to Ohio for, for various reasons. And I was like, well, I'm, I'm moving away from home for the first time for a, like a long distance and a long period of time. Like I had lived in Duluth, but that's two and a half hours away from the Twin Cities. And now I'm getting ready to move 800 miles away and like a half a day's drive. And so it was like, it was super tumultuous and just like, it was felt like a whirlwind. Like I went from packing up my car like full of stuff and driving down to like a week later starting school. And it was quite a transition. I I think at times it was really kind of tough. But Columbus has a weird way of growing on people. I think I see a lot of people that move here and really kind of fall in love in the city. And at first, I was like, I hate it here. I having trouble adjusting to my graduate program. I miss home. I had just started seeing the woman that's now my wife. And she was in Minnesota. So I was like, you know, I just really wish I was back. And I went back for the summer after the first year and halfway through the summer, I found myself missing Columbus. I found myself like, you know, 
I had an apartment <laughs> in Victorian Village my first year, and I was like, I really miss the little coffee shop that I would go walk to, and I miss walking up Neal Avenue to go to campus, and I miss going on drives out to Newark and passing through the Appalachian, like foothills. And so I came back for my second year and I really kind of embraced the city. And so like, you know, if you ask me now, I love Columbus. I think that my wife and I are really happy here. And although, you know, the chances are extremely likely that one day I'll have to leave the city, it's, it's always going to have a place in my heart as like one of my favorite places that I've ever lived. So that's a very, very long-winded kind of <laughs> narrative of the, the whole geographies of relocating. Oh, wow. We need to send that part of the conversation to the city of Columbus so that they can use it in their marketing material. Like that was really heartfelt. I was like, I can totally relate to that because I've had a love for a city Mm -hmm. in a similar way. But when you said that when you left for the summer, you realized how much you really enjoy Columbus. Mm -hmm. And I felt kind of that way with Austin. When I was there, I was like, oh man, like this is not DC, which is where I moved from. Mm -hmm. And I really missed DC when I was in Austin. And Austin over time did grow on me and I really enjoyed it towards the end. And now that I'm in Columbus, I'm like, oh, I just miss the green belts in Austin. And I miss Barton Creek and just all of the places that we would go hiking. It's just a really geographically like... The hill country is nothing like what I imagined Texas to be. I'd never set foot in Texas until I moved to Austin for work. And flying into the Austin airport, I was like, why are there like cliffs and hills? Like, I just thought it would be, I don't know, just like this dry flatland with like tumbleweed, (laughs) just like passing by. Kind of like the same perceptions or like similar perceptions that you had about Ohio. But it just then coming to Columbus, realizing that. It's not what you thought it was, but better. No, definitely. I um, When it, it came time, my wife finished her master's degree and we started talking about moving in together. And she came out to Columbus to visit for a few times and she got hooked. Yeah. She was actually living in Duluth and she decided that she wanted to just move cross country to move in with me. So she's really enjoyed it here in Columbus too. Like we have nothing but good things to say about the city. Yeah. That's the best part. I can just tell you I've moved so many times in my life that... Mm-hmm. With every city, you just really wanted to feel like home, a home away from home in a way, right? Definitely. So I'm glad that you found that here in Columbus. I'm in the process of doing that, but I'm so proud of the diversity that we have here. Mm -hmm. It's amazing. And OSU, I'd never heard of OSU or I never thought about it until I moved to Columbus. And I'm just like, it's everywhere, not only because I'm in Columbus, but even beyond Ohio. And it's really coincidental that you're from OSU. Mm -hmm. When I reached out to you, it was over Twitter and you mentioned that you were going to be teaching the Indigenous Environmental Activism course. And later on, I found out you're from OSU. I was like, what a small world it is. But then it also, another coincidence is that like earlier in season one, I interviewed Michael T. Charles, who's currently completing his PhD also at OSU. And he's also part of the Native American Indigenous Student Initiative. And in his interview, he talks about his involvement in Indigenous environmental activism, which again is what we're going to be talking about. But before we get into that, I wanted to share about your experiences in your postdoc of being an Indigenous scholar. So what does that mean? So I feel like in order to fully accurately answer that, we would almost need another episode, but I'm going to... (laughs) Happy to do that. I'm going to do my best (laughs) to give you the short answer. And what I think it really means is that Geography is a discipline that we are 
intrinsically interested with the concept of space and how humans interact with space and how space interacts with humans and how the earth is thought of as space and all the different aspects of the earth spheres, like the atmosphere and the earth itself. And it's such a very broad discipline. Actually, one of the biggest tensions I think in our discipline is trying to define what exactly what we are, because a lot of people are like, well, everything could be geography. So if everything's geography, then is it possible that nothing really is geography? And <laughs> it's one of those things that we have, we have seminars about this kind of stuff. And we, 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 we grapple with these kinds of questions. But I think that when I define myself as an indigenous geographer, I am chiefly really interested in the way that indigenous people engage with space in all of its different kinds of definitions, right? Like earth space, like political space, cultural space. And I mean, I just wrote an article about indigenous engagements with outer space. And so that's really the chief core identity that I have as an indigenous geographer. And that really kind of helps to ground myself and to be able to define the work that I do in a really robust and complete way. Yeah, I really did like that article. And I'll link it in the show notes as well. All of the articles that you're just very thought provoking. And I guess I never really thought about it from that perspective, the indigenous perspective and outer space. But I'm reading right now Rosalind LaPere's book about visible and invisible stories. And she does mention how in an indigenous storytelling or in beliefs that there is like an outer space where like the higher powers that be kind of quote unquote live mm -hmm. and that you can move between those two realms. It's not like, at least like with Hinduism, we believe that when you go from earth, you go to heaven and you can come back. But the way she describes it and the way I understand it is that you can be a living being and move between those realms. Anyways, I'm going down a rabbit hole. I just like, it's really fascinating to compare those kind of perceptions around like spirituality or like omnipresent energies and how like mortal human beings I guess interact with those spaces is what I'm trying to get at. So your research interest focuses on indigenous remains and burial grounds. How did you come to develop your research interests in that? Sure. So it really dates back to my master's degree. And I came into my master's degree and I was really interested kind of in this really broad question of what are the intersections of geography and indigenous sovereignty? And being a first year master's student, I obviously might, it was going to be too broad of a project. And I had to kind of think of ways to kind of narrow that down. And it was during my second semester that there was a series of controversies that happened in the Duluth region where a couple of indigenous tribal members had passed away in uh, separate unrelated car accidents. But what really tied them together was that the medical examiner of the region wanted to conduct autopsies on the bodies as he was empowered to do under state law that deals with death investigations. And in both cases, the families had very legitimate religious concerns about autopsy and they didn't want them carried out because they didn't want the bodies being desecrated by being cut open as it usually happens with an autopsy. And so the families took these really creative, really resilient ways of, of resistance that from an outsider point of view, I happened to be actually out of town that weekend. And so when I came back, I heard, oh, well, some Native American families were protesting outside of the medical school and outside of this courthouse nearby. And I was like, well, that's really interesting. I think that I kind of want to focus on that as kind of my master's project. And I did interviews. And the really interesting thing was, is that I talked to somebody who was involved with it. And I used the word protest and they stopped me. They said, well, 
that wasn't a protest that one of the families were doing or the other family. They weren't protesting. What they were doing is they were trying to do actions that were based in their cultural teachings and their cultural knowledge to try to get the bodies back and to try to honor them with funeral rites. And so that really got me thinking. And I wrote my thesis and I went on to OSU and my advisor was like, well, why don't you turn your thesis into an article? And I really kind of started to focus on that angle of kind of everyday resistance and centering around the, the defense of the dead. And as it's kind of constituted now, as I talk about it in my dissertation, there's kind of this idea in kind of non-Indigenous circles that when somebody dies, that's the end of kind of any political agency or any kind of political power that they might hold. But if we take a look at the ways that Indigenous communities in North America have taken very robust actions to protect burial grounds and to protect remains from desecration, you'll see that these actions really are a very unique form of resistance where they're doing it through based through everyday actions that we might not necessarily understand as resistance. But as a result of the state in what I call the settler colonial state kind of runs into kind of this quandary where they're like, well, we can't punish them for doing these everyday things, right? They're not giving us the legitimacy of these rowdy indigenous people that we can oppress and we can put down because we can paint a picture of them threatening people or being violent. They're not doing that. So what do we do? And so it's an area that really hasn't had a lot of scholarship in it, especially in geography. And so I kind of viewed this as a kind of a new direction to take in geography that helps further indigenous sovereignty. And B, because of like my own family background and some of the things that some of my family members have gone through related to death, I kind of view it as personally important work as well. So that at the very least, my family will understand kind of what to do if somebody passes away in their family and they want a traditional burial, but a coroner doesn't want to go along with the, the tenets of that, then we have a resource that we can use to help that out. So really, it's about helping Indigenous people and really kind of making sure that we understand that the dead have political power. Like they're not just inert and just useless just because they've passed away. The dead have political power. Tell us more about that. Well, there's other kinds of forms of political power that are animated through death, right? Like one of the early literatures that I read through was this idea of thanato politics or the idea of like, for example, when this, if a suicide bomber blows themselves up, that's an act of political power and killing themselves and taking their own life. And that kind of runs counter to this idea of necropolitics, which is the idea that the state can decide to take life from people as it chooses. And I kind of provide an alternative to both of those where I'm saying, well, the indigenous person's not just dying as an act of political defiance, right? And they're not really being directly killed by the settler state, or maybe they are, but it's a very broad kind of spectrum of causes of death. But the idea then, let's say that the person passes away and a autopsy center says, well, we want to take the body to use to train our pathology residents on how to, how to do an autopsy. Families have the right to say no, and if they don't have the right in the state to do that, they should definitely have the right to object to an autopsy. As far as burial grounds, when road construction projects or infrastructural projects go on and they accidentally dig up bones, you know, most of the time people are actually really good about it and they make sure that they stop and they consult with like local tribes or local agencies. But there's always like those instances where they just don't do that and they either try to cover it up or they're like, oh, well, maybe let's try to rush this project through and not consult with anybody so that we can cover it up. And I say, well, by indigenous nations saying, hey, hold on, you need to, A, you need to stop doing that if you've done it, or B, we're going to make sure that you know damn well what's in the ground before you put a shovel in it so that you don't disturb any burial grounds or any culturally significant places. That's kind of another form of resistance and kind of political power that's being 
exerted by the dead because while the dead may not be physically exerting that themselves, they're animating kind of certain forms of political resistance by indigenous nations and by the living. Mm. Yes, yes. As you were talking, I was curious to know, you mentioned that now the settler state has gotten good about consulting with the local tribes, indigenous tribes, if they come across bones in the ground. Do you know historically what the treatment has been of indigenous burial grounds prior to the current practices? From the historical archival research that I've done, especially in the context of Minnesota, there was just no respect paid to them at all. At best, they were viewed as kind of minor inconveniences in the way of construction and in the way of like having to do projects where it's like, oh, well, you know, man, we're going to have to consult with the natives because they're going to get mad if we dig up the remains. That was the best case scenario that I usually found. The worst case scenario is like, oh, well, we dug it up and well, we made a mistake, but oh, well, we're just going to keep digging up this road and we're going to keep doing this all the way to the point of where, especially in the 19th century, when this happened with black bodies as well, but indigenous bodies and indigenous graves were viewed as fair game for anthropologists and for kind of these gentleman scholars to go in and say, well, I'm going to dig up the remains. And for example, I don't have the book here in the office, unfortunately, otherwise I'd show it to you. There's this book by this man named Samuel Morton called uh, Crania Americana, I believe, where he sought out to measure intelligence in this junk science field called phrenology, where it's the idea of, well, you can measure somebody's intelligence by measuring the size of their skulls. And so he got hold of a bunch of different indigenous skulls, and he measured their skulls, and he made judgment calls on their, on their intelligence. And he compared them to European white skulls, which, of course, and no surprise, were judged to be bigger and therefore had the capacity for more intelligence than indigenous people. And so it just was really kind of this free-for-all that happened. One of the case studies that I talk about is that the formation of the Mayo Clinic. Creation was kind of fueled very indirectly through the grave robbing of Dakota man's body after a, a mass execution that happened. Uh, Dr. William W. Mayo dug up the bones and brought them to his frontier medical practice, and he, he taught his son's anatomy with the skeleton and in the remains, and those remains didn't get returned to the man's descendants for like almost 140 years. The Mayo Clinic just held on to him, and this was like 1862 when this happened, and it was like 1998 before they were able to get those remains repatriated. And so... There's just kind of this this long history of just kind of enduring disrespect and kind of viewing indigenous remains and burial grounds as kind of being particularly useful in some ways, but also, you know, maybe being obstacles in another way. But the net result was just still like disrespect for like indigenous sovereignty and indigenous remains. Yeah. Wow. I'm so disgusted right now. <laughs> and I'm not laughing because it's, I don't think it's funny. I'm just, I laugh because I'm just appalled and I almost like have no words to just express how offensive that is. I imagine if that happened to like my ancestors, how would I feel? It just also makes me think of a book I read. It's about the HeLa cells. What was Henrietta Lacks? Mm -hmm. And how a lot of the, the medical advancements that we've been able to make around like cell regeneration and cell division has been because of these cancerous cells that they took from Henrietta Lacks. And they have been propagating her cells for decades and her family hasn't gotten any kind of remuneration from it. 
And even worse is that they acknowledge that they stole it from her without her knowledge. And they still, like the medical community still won't recognize the contribution that her and so many other Black and Indigenous folks have given towards medical, like Western medical advancement. With each story or each fact that I hear, it just aggravates me even more each time. And I did hear, it was a webinar, and I can't remember where the speaker did mention that, like you said, some of the anthropologists would go from grave to indigenous grave burial grounds and take the bones for, because it was, I guess, like a collection item or something in some cases. And I'm just like, you have no ethics, no, just, I can't, I have no words. I can't, I can't. Yeah, it's really tough. It's really tough. I have some friends that are kind of, we're in medical school or we're in the medical field and and I saw them kind of almost, they were talking about, they're like, you know, I feel really fortunate to get to work with, you know, the cells that come from Henrietta Lacks. And I was like, if you understood the history of that, like you wouldn't be bragging about that, like on social media, right? Like that's just kind of par for the course in like American history is that non-white bodies have found themselves being kind of made to be of use to the state in these very destructive and very disrespectful ways for the advancements of the state, right? Like in my dissertation, you know, the central point I was trying to make is like indigenous bodies were made to make white bodies healthy and to make white lands healthy and to pass, you know, control of land over into the hands of the settler colonial state. And that chapter of my dissertation, the really overarching kind of big impact that I try to make is like, well, you know, the state of Minnesota is essentially built figuratively and in some cases literally on the bones of indigenous people. Like this modern state has this kind of very bloody legacy that it's only been recently that we've started to kind of really address that as a broader state. I mean, for indigenous communities, they've been dealing with this for generations, right? But this is like within the last few years, you know, the Mayo Clinic started to apologize for the usage of that man's remains. And I was like, well, it took you that long to apologize and to say, well, we want to do better. But, you know, at the same time, it's kind of that that hopefulness that is like, maybe we might turn a corner and we can contend with this legacy so that we can leave it behind and never have to return to something like that again. Yeah. What I'm thinking is, Apologies, great, but give back a significant percentage of the profits that you've made out of exploitation of these peoples back to them. That's what like really kind of grinds my gears is that you feel that just an apology is enough to think that, okay, we recognize what was done and let's kind of move on and quote unquote do better. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I wanted to ask you is around your research on burial grounds, but as it relates to Ohio, and I don't know if you do some of that, if you do look at burial grounds in Ohio, I read somewhere, probably on the government website, that Ohio has the most number of native burial grounds preserved. Is that correct? I'm not familiar with that exact statistic, but it would be something that I would want to believe that that's correct, right? Like the really interesting thing in Ohio is that As you may know, there are no federally recognized tribes in the state, but there are a lot of kind of remnants of tribal presences. And one of those kind of areas of presences that that have been left behind are burial mounds. For example, you know, I'm really reminded of the burial mounds, the earthworks out in Newark, just about 35 minutes east of here, um, where OSU has like an earthwork center that is dedicated to doing research with that. But I mean, even there, there's a golf course that owns part of the land that one of the mounds is on. And they basically allow one day a year for people to come and actually tour the mounds. Otherwise, it's off limits because it's an active golf course. And I'm like, 
you're playing golf on, you know, the remaining burials of people that, that live there. Like, it's absolutely crazy. We were actually, my wife and I were just driving through Newark and then uh, Heath, which is the city right next to it. I think there's like a road named after like Indian Mound Road. And I think there might be like an Indian Mound Mall or something like that. Like, this is like a name that adorns like shopping centers. And it's just like, well, that's just par for the course, right? Like you kind of build over these lands that belong to indigenous people. And then you kind of take a name that's really probably deeply significant and you use it for, you know, these capitalistic purposes. And it's just kind of really frustrating to see. Gosh, I can just imagine how witnessing this on a daily basis is just sort of like an affront on your individual existence, presence in the space. How do you manage with that kind of more than offensive acts of capitalism on like your culture, like your people? Mm -hmm. So as far as like Ohio goes, it's, it's really frustrating. And I really support the work of the Earthworks Center and like the work of people that are really trying to push back against that. In the context of the state, you know, like people like the Shawnee and the Miami people are the original inhabitants of the state. I think that's one reason why I've kind of taken a step back from trying to engage is because I, as Anishinaabe, I don't want to speak over those people's voices when it comes to this land. Yeah. We see this in the Twin Cities as well. There's a park called Mounds Park in St. Paul that was named because there were burial mounds there. And there's been like very well-documented cases of burial mounds in the north of the state that have been dug into or that were used that were like in state parks where people could literally go and like climb on top of them and things like that. And so like in those cases, you know, since that's a little bit closer to home for me, that's definitely like, I feel very comfortable being more vocal and saying like, hey, like cut that stuff out. Like that's not your playground, right? Those are people in there that we buried with care and, and with love. And we want to make sure that they're being honored, right? Even in death, like they're not just your playgrounds to have fun on. Mm -hmm. I recently did come across the Earthworks, which I'm so glad I did because it was during an Indigenous People's Day celebration that the Native American Student Initiative at OSU was happening and they were talking about Earthworks. It's like, that's really cool. I would really like to go there. And I went to the website, but I didn't see any mention of the golf course, which another thing that's boiling my blood or like making me <laughs> enraged. But it's something that I have on my list to check out that place as well as the other burial grounds around Ohio because I had no idea. It's part of like learning. I don't know if I'm like punning the word here, but to learn about the geography of where I live, right? No, no, no pun at all. Yeah. No pun there at all. That's <laughs> very true. So I wanted to talk to you about Indigenous resistance. Throughout many of the articles that you've read, there's this consistent theme around resistance in the work that you do. And thank you for referencing the book, as we have always done, <laughs> sorry, by Leanne Simpson. And in that, she calls for an unapologetic place-based Indigenous alternatives to the destructive logics of the settler colonial state, including heteropatriarchy, white supremacy, and capitalist exploitation. I really felt the need to read that because it just really encapsulates to me, I think, what Indigenous resistance is. But on the basis of your work and that description, how has your research been inspired by Simpson's work? Because you also describe your work as everyday resistance against the settler colonial state. So what does that look like? Sure. So Leanne Simpson's book has been one of the most formative pieces of writing that I, I've ever read. I, I bought it back in 2017 when I was first kind of trying to conceive of my dissertation project. And it really, really spoke to me. 
And how I have interpreted their writing is that they talk about that in order to return to this kind of radical resurgent politics of land and space and indigenous sovereignty and space, that we really need to make sure that we're reclaiming our ceremonies and reclaiming our everyday practices that have been handed down by our ancestors before us, right? Like the tools in order to try to be resilient against settler colonialism and to envision a better future. Like we don't need to go searching for those tools. Like they've been here the entire time and all we need to do is to reclaim them and to practice them. And so how that's really kind of come through in my work is that when I've talked about like these acts of governance that have really pushed back against settler colonial misusage of indigenous remains or of mistreatment of burial grounds, I try to point out that these kinds of acts are not super performative and they're not like these big spectacular things that are meant to grab attention. What they're really are are just, you know, these everyday like cultural practices that have been handed down and that are have taken new forms, obviously, with with different periods of time, but are still rooted in kind of these same kind of set of teachings that have been handed down through generations and through generations. And really what that means is that through just these everyday practices that people would do anyways, they're really taking these robust actions to defend the dead in ways that the settler colonial state really can't contend with very well. Like as I was talking about earlier, when a tribe says our very presence as a indigenous sovereign nation and the the nature of the government to government relationship that we have with the United States and with the state of Minnesota, for example, dictates that we have a right to oversee any kind of construction work that is going on on our reservation. And in, in overseeing it, what we want you to do is we want you to get a survey done of the proposed area of impact and then will approve it. And if there's nothing wrong with what's going on, then you can go ahead and do the construction. That's a very serious and very effective form of resistance that the settler colonial state really, they find themselves like, well, they're not supposed to be doing that, but they have the right to do that. So we have to respect it. And it it really reframes the power dynamic from being one where the state and settlers can come in and do whatever they want to, one where they have to play by the rules of the tribal nation and they need to make sure that they are paying very close attention to what what they're doing because the tribal nation is keeping an eye on them and they're letting them know that we will protect our community. And our community is not just our living tribal members, but it's our more than human kin, like the animals, fish, water, plants, and our deceased relatives, right? That's all, those are all important parts of our tribe, our heritage and our culture. And we're going to make sure that those are well taken care of, or you're not going to get to do what you're wanting to do here. And so that's kind of where I've really taken on kind of where Simpson talks about these radical resurgence of politics related to land and really have ran with it in the area of tribal cultural resource, like preservation and protection. Yeah, there's something that you said, which made me how oh, that sounds really abstract as you were describing Simpson's work as it applies to your own resistance. It made me think that this wouldn't necessarily be resistance if it was the norm, right? Mm-hmm. It wouldn't be as radical, quote unquote, radical, if it was just the way of doing things in a respectful and inclusive manner and recognizing the indigenous way of doing things or way of being. When I read that particular definition of indigenous resistance, it made me think about like decolonizing oneself. And that's a concept that I have recently learned about when I say recently this past year. And I'm learning about what that kind of looks like in my own way of doing things, I guess. So how do you 
And if I'm like making the right connections here with it, like being decolonizing, right? Like, so how do you decolonize your research as an indigenous geographer, scholar? Sure. So I really like to think about the term decolonization is nowadays a kind of a bit of a buzzword for good and bad in the academy that I think that, you know, obviously it's pointing towards a very positive process where we can take a look at different possibilities of what might be and kind of deconstructing kind of this settler colonial capitalist white supremacist kind of structures that we find ourselves within but also it, it tends to get co-opted a bit and i think that people kind of throw the word decolonization onto things that maybe aren't decolonial and so really when when i approach like the idea of decolonization i kind of view decolonization as kind of this overarching journey that i'm taking myself upon and really what consists of decolonization are decolonial actions like acts that are meant to subvert these systems that that were within and so that's kind of how I view the idea of decolonization. Like decolonization is kind of this overarching journey and it is a far off goal because we are definitely not there yet. But in the meantime, in order to do that, I have to take these concrete steps, right? And I have to make sure that if I am going to say that my actions are decolonial, that they are really meant to subvert and they are meant to really push back against the settler colonial structures that I find myself within. One of the kind of big debates that I found myself in is like, can you decolonize the academy? And it's like, well, I think we can, but I think it may take a very radical reshaping of what the academy looks like, right? You can't decolonize a, a white settler colonial structure, but if you dismantle that structure, maybe you might be able to build something in its place. There's a term, the master's house will never be dismantled with the master's tools. The master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. Audre Lord said that. And I, I tend to agree with her. So I say, in that case, then let's pull out an indigenous toolkit. If we can't dismantle it with the masters, with the settler colonial tools, and we pull out an indigenous toolkit and we start dismantling it that way. And then yeah. that'll get us a lot further down the road of where we need to go. Yeah, I'm realizing that the word is still, or the concept is still kind of ambiguous to a certain extent for me. Like, not that I don't understand what the concept is, but like for me personally, what does it mean in terms of like how I grew up, where I grew up, what schools did I go to, what did I learn, and in what context did I learn history? So those are, I think for me, it's more of like an unlearning or learning like the full mm -hmm. or the other's story, I guess. I like that you can't break the master's house with the master's tools. Yep, the master's tools will not dismantle the master's house. I think there was a name of an, a reading that Lord wrote back in the 80s, I believe, actually. Okay. Might have even been I learned 70s. something here. Yeah. I'll add that to my reading list. So I want to switch gears here a little bit, but we're still sort of like in this theme of Indigenous resistance. And I wanted to talk about the Indigenous Environments Activism course that you're teaching whenever this comes out in spring 2021. And it's one of the main reasons that I did reach out to you. Mm -hmm. And so I see a, a direct connection between your work and this course. So I'm curious to know, I guess we've kind of talked a little bit about this, but if you have anything else to add, I did have this question of how does the resistance manifest in the course readings and structure? Definitely, that's a great question. I think that one of the ways that I really kind of try to manifest resistance in the course curricula is that I've really tried to make sure that the reading lists and the readings and the things that we do are heavily indigenized, right? Like even now, like my syllabus is like about 99% complete and I'm going to go back through and I'm going to take a look at the reading list. And I'm like, well, here's a piece written by a non-indigenous scholar that can be easily replaced with it just as hard hitting a piece that's written by an indigenous scholar. 
and taking a look at maybe different kind of forms of media dissemination, right? So beyond just reading dry journal articles or book chapters, I think I'm going to add a graphic novel that was written about kind of indigenous usage of, of the land to the reading list. And I'm actually in the middle of reading this kind of book on Anishinaabe botany that I just bought that I think would be a really, really good fit for that. And so I really want to push back in, in that regard. I think another way that I push back is that too often in academia, we kind of have this idea that it's a very individualistic kind of culture where like, you know, so-and-so is the expert on A, B, and C. And I really want to point out that, well, I'm the one teaching the course and this is my research expertise, but there are people on the ground that are actually doing this kind of work right now. And I want to uplift their voices because it typically gets left out of academia unless there's something that we can take from them in an extractive manner. And I really kind of want to bring these people in in a non-extractive way to almost make them co-teachers. And so I've kind of curated this list of guest speakers that are coming in that are indigenous environmental activists and environmental scientists and tribal employees that do work on environmental resource management. And we're going to, they're going to talk to the class about a lot of the different topics that we're going to be talking about in the overall class. And what I really want to do with that is show, hey, let's say we're reading about tribal fishing rights. Well, I'm going to bring in a lawyer that actually went to the Supreme Court and helped fight for one tribe's right to be able to respect their treaty rights related to fishing. And he'll be there to answer questions and to talk to you. And I think that's going to be really effective because it brings in these topics in a very real everyday kind of manner, right? Where it's not, you're just not just reading about it anymore. You're seeing the people who are actually making it happen. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It sounds like a really well-rounded approach because you're looking at like activism from different perspectives, from the government to like mm-hmm. grassroots as well. Yeah. So I see that as a common theme. Are there other common themes that you're going to be exploring in this course? I think it's a geography and history course, like it's co-listed. So I think that, you know, I want to kind of, I spend half the class, I'm speaking in present terms already, I think I'm already in a teaching mode where I'm going to spend half this class really painting this history of the settler colonial state and the environmental destruction that it's wrought. But then I bring us into the present with geography and I say, let's take a look at the spatial patterns that are going on in the everyday as we approach climate crisis and how the usage and destruction of indigenous land is contributing to that. And then we spend the last couple of weeks taking a look at different literatures that are related to indigenous futurisms and kind of saying, well, what might a a more environmentally just future for indigenous people look like in an era of climate crisis? Because the Anthropocene, it's coming and it's almost to a point now where I don't, we can't reverse it anymore. So we have to take a look at, well, how are indigenous nations going to continue to be resilient into the future? But at the center of all these things is just going to be, you know, this idea of everyday resistance, but also, you know, maybe some kind of more spectacular resistance as well. And just kind of these ideas that Indigenous people are not kind of sitting here and just taking this kind of stuff lying down, right? That they're taking actions that are based in cultural frameworks to make sure that their nations do have a future and that their next generations of tribal citizens will have an opportunity to still live within the environments that they're in today. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so what does the future look like in this context? So... The beauty of it is that there are a multitude of different futures that are there because of like, you know, the multitude of tribal voices. Um, you know, I really think of Wazia Tawin's book, What Does Justice Look Like? And she talks about Dakota people and what environmental justice might look like for Dakota people in Minnesota. And there's a number of other books that I'm reading right now by like Nick Estes and Dina Gilio Whitaker and people that are really kind of engaging with this in a really robust way and kind of pointing at using their kind of conceptions and saying, well, here's what potential futures might look like. But kind of the fun thing is, I think that as I conceive of it right now, we might leave the question slightly unanswered because it's like, well, 
these are the futurisms that we're, we're taking a look at right now, but who knows what it might look like in another 10 years, right? Like we have young indigenous people out there like Autumn Pelletier, water protectors that are really doing amazing work. And who knows, they may come up with even more robust and exciting future for their communities and their nations going up. So it's just, instead of kind of trying to define like, this is what it's going to look like. It's like, let's take a look at the possibilities and let's allow ourselves to dream a little bit. And who knows, maybe one of those dreams will come into reality. I like that you said that because you kind of checked me because <laughs> I was like, what does the future look like? Only because of my mindset is a one of being uncomfortable with the unknown or just like having a definition of it. But I think your perspective is just adding, a, I guess, a different perspective for the lack of a better term. And it doesn't sound as scary. Like, let's just see what it looks like with us working collectively. Like, we don't have to have that answer right now. As time goes by, our ideas will evolve and I guess our intentions will also evolve. So let's see what it looks like then. So thank you for that. So I'm glad that you mentioned Autumn Pelsier about how Indigenous youth activists are kind of like taking like one of the front seats. It's not necessarily their responsibility, but they've really stepped up. Like it's amazing. And I wanted to give a shout out to Michael T. Charles, who was on the podcast and the primary focus of our conversation was around his work as an Indigenous youth environmental activist. And he talked about throughout his experiences in that position, and especially being in community around the time of Standing Rock, he observed that mainstream environmental organizations derailed the efforts and messaging of the Native community from like social and environmental injustices and the physical violence that they were being brought upon their communities and their bodies. As a result, it was being taken away from them, taking away from like the environmental crisis from like a social justice perspective as well. Mm -hmm. So in your research around this course, have you found something similar where mainstream activism is like having a detrimental impact on indigenous environmental activism? Yes, really a lot of it centers around the idea of treaty rights. And, and part of that is like hunting and fishing and gathering rights that are things that we may not always view as environmental behaviors and kind of this dominant settler framework. And what that's meant is that when indigenous nations try to assert those treaty rights, they're viewed as, well, you're going to fish to an extent that all the fish are going to get taken out of this lake, or you're going to take up all these plants, or you're going to take up all these resources. And these are kind of things that have been, I actually think of one of the more famous ones has been this kind of shaming of Arctic peoples for like seal hunting and people like on the West Coast for whale hunting. And kind of these environmental groups kind of going in there saying, well, they're doing these really bad things. And it's problematic because that kind of a viewpoint robs indigenous people of their agency and their sovereignty. And it also yeah. assumes that settlers are going to know more about stewardship than indigenous people do. I do not know a single indigenous person out there that understands their treaty rights and goes about it with, it, with greed and with an idea of, well, I'm going to take all these resources, right? That tribes understand that with these rights comes an important role of environmental stewardship. And so when you kind of get this kind of anti-Indigenous behavior and, and mainstream environmental activism, it's just really shocking and saddening because it's like, well, are you really down for helping Indigenous people? Or are you only down when your voices are being centered and when Indigenous sovereignty is being pushed down and their own self-determination is being kind of pushed to the side? And so 
that's kind of one of the things that I'm going to be talking about in this course is like, we need to understand that indigenous people's life ways and their ways of gathering and hunting and fishing date long before colonization, right? They may be using more modern techniques in order to do it, but it's still based in these long-standing ideas. And without fetishizing kind of indigenous connection with the environment, it's still pretty apparent that indigenous communities kind of know what needs to be done in order to make sure they protect their environments. And I think that in cases where, like in the Navajo Nation, or like, you know, I think of the Northern Cheyenne people that have had a lot of controversy with like coal mining, when they do these extractive resources too, people are like, oh, well, you see, Native people can't protect the environment. And it's like, well, that's not a question of being environmentally damaging. That's a question of capitalism, right? That's a question of settler colonial capitalism pushing tribal nations to do this because they have to make sure that people have jobs and that they can feed themselves and take care of themselves, right? And these tribal nations that are drawn up as reservations, they were often drawn up in places that were usually viewed as like economically unproductive, right? So if tribes were finding ways to make productive use out of the land, the immediate jump is, well, we should blame them. And it's like, well, no, we shouldn't blame them. We need to reckon with this system that has put them in that kind of a position and, you know, look at things like maybe giving land back, right? Maybe if they, they weren't in a position where they needed to do that, they wouldn't do it. So yeah, it can get really victim blamey sometimes and very kind of anti-Indigenous. And that's really been kind of frustrating. And we're going to talk about that in the course. Yeah, I can just hear like the energy and the power. I, I wish I could take your course <laughs> or be a fly on the wall. There's this moment where the other side is always saying like, gotcha. Mm-hmm. They're just waiting for that. Mm-hmm. And it's problematic, like you said. And what other choices have you left for us, in a sense? If we had better options, we would do better. But you mentioned Land Back. Tell us about what Land Back is, what that movement is about. Sure. So Land Back is a big thing in Indigenous circles now. I think that it's a rallying cry. And it really means a lot of different things to different people. So some people kind of view land back as a very logical, well, the land should be returned to indigenous people. And I tend to agree with that. But I think that a lot of people also kind of say, well, land back means that people need to recognize that indigenous people have longstanding connections with a lot of spaces that they've been dispossessed from and that we should recognize the relationships that they have with the land and the rights to be able to be in conversation and to be in those spaces that they were historically dispossessed from. That's kind of how I've approached the idea of land back. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think like the reactions that I've seen and mainly again on social media is a fear for those who are receiving the non-Indigenous folks Mm -hmm. who are receiving the message of like, oh, well, what's that going to look like? Like what's going to happen to us kind of situation? I'm in agreement with you of like, yes, give back the lands that were originally theirs and let's find a way to collaborate. That for me is what I understand about like land back. Definitely. There's this fear and I've gotten into a couple of debates on Twitter where people equate it with ethno-nationalism that will native people are going to create an indigenous majority state. And it's like, well, that misunderstands the fundamental nature of indigenous people in North America, right? There's over 500 recognized tribes in the United States. There's hundreds of First Nations in Canada. So it wouldn't be just some one big indigenous state, right? And I think that it comes out of this kind of fear. There's always this weird anxiety in settler colonialism that, oh, if we give non-white people power, they're going to do what we did to them, right? There's this kind of fear of vengeance. And I, I think that it's really, really kind of misplaced in a lot of ways. There might be some indigenous people that say, well, yes, settlers need to go back to Europe. 
what a lot of people are just kind of saying, as I said, it's like it's really about reshaping kind of the fundamental narratives around this, these lands and, and who they belong to and, and what should be done with them. Mm-hmm. I guess in the vein of the future, I feel like I would love to see that kind of future. I want to be mindful of the time. I know that we've gone above an hour, but so interesting. So we'll go to the lightning round of our conversation, which is kind of like the end of it. Typically, it's I ask you a series of four questions and whatever comes to first to your mind, you can answer it. So the first question here is, what have you read, heard or watched that has influenced you the most? I really enjoyed seeing the work that's being done by a lot of indigenous activists in, in the academy and outside of the academy, whether that's through books or journal articles or song, dance, other kind of media, because I really think that it's really pushed indigenous issues to the forefront and it's kind of pushed it to the forefront in a way that makes it extremely hard to ignore. So I'm always constantly, whenever I see a book that's written by an awesome indigenous scholar, I buy it. I'm always constantly kind of talking with people on Twitter and, and getting an idea of what they're doing. So that, that's really helped to influence me, right? Like I view myself as being in community with these people and really they've helped to shape me into the scholar that I am today. Yeah. And thank you for sharing your reading list. I don't know if I can share that. Yeah. It's fascinating. Yeah. Next question is, what's a personal habit that has helped you significantly in your work? A personal habit that has helped me significantly in my work has been whenever I've been writing something and I tend to probably to my own detriment, I tend to write in time crunches because that just seems to be how I do it. Um, I really like to just go someplace where I can be by myself and that I can just kind of be at peace and just kind of take my time in the writing process. So when I wrote my dissertation, I kind of shut myself off in my office for like three months and basically just kind of powered through it. But I really, that really helps because a it helps me to just kind of be in a good thinking space. And also B, it helps me to appreciate people like my wife and things like that. When I do actually go out and like, and talk to people and kind of interact with people, it really helps me to appreciate them a little bit more as well. And so I'm a solo writer. I do write in groups. I'm part of a writing group right now. And that, that really, really does help when it comes time to like kind of collaborating on ideas. But generally, like when it's like a really big project on my own, I kind of just like to just kind of sit up by myself and get it hammered out. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. I can relate to that. What's the best piece of advice you've received? There was a mentor of mine at the University of Minnesota Duluth that he's retired and he's moved on now. But he always told me, like when I was first starting out in graduate school, he was always like, remember that you're doing this for your people, right? Like never forget like who you're seeking to help and who you're doing this for when you do that work. And that's been the single most guiding factor in my work, right? Like trying to make sure that I'm giving back to my tribe and that I'm doing work that they can be proud of and that we can use if the time arises. Mm-hmm. That's a good one. Finally, what is your superpower? Oh, that is a good one. What is my superpower? I think my superpower as of lately is networking and talking with people, um, especially through Twitter. I had a Twitter a long time ago and I stopped using it and I started up this current Twitter that I have in 2017. And I thought, oh, you know, maybe I'll, I'll tweet a little bit about academic stuff and talk with people I know. And now, based on Twitter alone, I've been brought in contact with people like yourself and and other people that I've given talks to and done podcast interviews to, and I've gotten job opportunities through my Twitter connections and things like that. And I just so when people make contact with me on there, like I never turn them away, right? I always want to talk with them and I try my best to always be available. And I'm always genuinely interested in what people have to say and kind of what people are looking for. 
I can't promise that I can always fulfill every kind of request of what people are looking for as far as help, but I'm always happy to just open lines of communication because who knows like where those will lead in the future, right? Yeah. And thank you for making space for me. I, I really do appreciate it. And I've enjoyed following you on Twitter. I, I'm learning so much and I really enjoyed the conversations that you're having on there. So in addition to Twitter, how can people follow you on your journey? Um, so beyond Twitter, I have a website, which I can make sure I can get you the link to the website. It's a little bare bones, but that's where I publish a lot of my work. Um, I also really ask people to follow the work of an organization called the Red Nation that I'm, I'm a proud comrade of. And it's a group of really awesome indigenous, feminist, socialist, revolutionaries who are really trying to do work to help to promote indigenous sovereignty and the freedom and well-being of all indigenous people in the Americas and beyond. I happen to be a member of the Great Lakes Freedom Council of the Red Nation, and they're just amazing people. And that's where I've been doing a lot of work outside of academia. And so give their Twitter account a follow, give their Facebook page a follow, and keep up with some of the awesome work that we're doing there. Yeah, it's really amazing how many Indigenous scholars are on Twitter. It's just, I feel like I hit a mine or something of that sort. It's really nice to see. So as this conversation comes to a close, is there anything else you would like to add? I think for Indigenous scholars out there, just keep your head high, like keep working hard. You know, I understand that if your experience, and I'm, I'm speaking to the scholars here, is anything like mine, you might find yourself in spaces that are hostile to you, but keep your head up because you belong in academia. You deserve to be doing great work. And also for the people that are doing amazing work outside of academic structures, keep it up, right? Like your work is just as valid, if not more valid and important regardless if you have letters after your name or you have academic credentials, right? Together, we're all doing work to help promote Indigenous resiliency and sovereignty into the future. So let's just keep working together and make it happen. Awesome. Amen to that. Well, thank you again so much for your time, DeAndre. Mm -hmm. It's been an absolute pleasure and an honor. And I wish you the best of luck in your future endeavors to just take over academia. (laughs) So thank you. Yes. Thank you so much for having me on. Hey, all. Thanks for listening to Breaking Green Ceilings. If you'd like to hear more episodes with change-making environmentalists, head on over to watersavvysolutions.com backslash podcast. You can find me online on Instagram and Twitter. And as always, if you love the show, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and like on iTunes. You can also sign up for my newsletter to find out when new episodes are available. And please do share the podcast with your family, friends, colleagues, and whoever you think will be inspired by the wisdom of our change makers. I always welcome feedback, so please do feel free to reach out to me. My contact information is also on watersavvysolutions.com. Until next time, keep breaking through those green ceilings.